and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and this is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! This week, for our first book club episode of 2019, we'll be discussing Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, first published 200 years ago last year, so we just missed the bicentennial. Uh, Frankenstein is one of the most well-known names in the Western literary canon due to its many and varied stage and screen adaptations, most of which diverge substantially from the source material. So for those of you unfamiliar, Frankenstein is the story of a young natural philosophy student, Victor Frankenstein, who decides while studying at university that it would be a great idea to reanimate a corpse, not even a corpse, but like pieces of corpses all stitched together, and who upon successfully doing so immediately regrets his decision. Written by Mary Shelley when she was only 19, Frankenstein helped usher in not only the 19th century gothic, but also science fiction as we know it today. So I read this book in college as a freshman. Uh, I think I may have had to read it twice in my freshman year, actually. But I had not read it since then. This is not a particular favorite of mine, I would say, as a book. But I think it's really interesting to think about and sort of talk about. So it's a good book club pick. And you had not read it before and read it for the first time. No, I just I just finished reading it the other day. And I just watched the 1931 Frankenstein movie for the first time before recording this, so I'm all prepared. Um, it's a funny book. I, yes. I'm highly amused by Lil Frankie, uh, my buddy, Lil Frankie. Um, what a fucking jackass, man. Yes. <laughs> he is He is just a huge, he is a tremendous, just toadstool of a man. <laughs> um, and I think the only way to possibly legitimize the way that any character treats him in this book is that he must be very handsome. <laughs> Because people are like, oh yes, Frankenstein, I, I must treat him well. He's had a, such a hard time of it. And it's like, this is what the acclaimed TV program 30 Rock described as living in the bubble. Um, <laughs> he is terrible in every particular, but people just love him. Um, yeah, classic Mary Sue, but in like a goth way. Yes, of course. One might say even a Byronic hero. And many have <laughs> speculated that he is based on Lord Byron. Or indeed Percy Shelley. Yes. Well, this is one of the interesting things about reading this book is that it's very difficult to detangle it from the sort of web of biographical information surrounding it and Mary Shelley. And I understand that. And it is it is important to the construction of the book. And certainly understanding that Victor Frankenstein was probably inspired at least partially by Byron and or Shelley is not necessary to reading the book, but certainly informs it and is almost certainly true. But um, Mary Shelley is an interesting literary historical figure because of all of the things that her sort of set, meaning her and Byron and Percy Shelley wrote at that time, Frankenstein is absolutely the most well-known or most read, certainly, today. Yeah, and she's often credited with basically inventing science fiction. Right. But when you look at her as a historical figure, she typically gets sort of subsumed by her husband and by Lord Byron because they were such titanic personalities. And interestingly, I think... In the United States, Frankenstein is the text from those authors that gets taught the most at 
colleges and probably some high schools too. Like it's a pretty accessible book. It's pretty short. It's interesting to talk about and it's famous. So we read that here a ton. In the UK, that is much less so the case. I've never heard of anyone reading Frankenstein as as a set text. Like sometimes people teach Dracula, but like with excerpts, because obviously it's a very long book. But no. Right. And like Dracula, I think I am of the opinion that you do not need to read all of Dracula to teach it. It's too long. But Frankenstein, it's just not taught in the UK. And Percy Shelley is the one who gets taught. Personally, I think he is the better writer. I don't think there's any need to not teach both of them. But it is so telling that that is how the sort of cultural divide has treated both of them. Like no one in America reads any of Percy Shelley's stuff except maybe a couple lyric poems until you get to like a very advanced level of studying romantic poetry. But part of the issue is that like her story with Shelley and Byron is really interesting and the two of them are really compelling figures. So I mean, it's truly bonkers that there has not been a historical biopic movie that is literally just a retelling of the origin story of writing Dracula because the whole scenario around this is so good. It like it I mean it starts with a volcanic eruption and then just gets more dramatic from there. Cause like for those who are not aware, Frankenstein was written while Mary Shelley, who at this point was 18, um, was on holiday with Percy, who I believe had not yet his he was still married because he was married when they met. He was like 21 she was 16, they fell in love, he was married but estranged, and his wife, I think, eventually committed suicide. Yes. Um, but, you know, teenage Mary went on holiday with him and their buddy Lord Byron and Lord Byron's girlfriend, and also Lord Byron's uh, special doctor, Dr. Polidori, who was there to give him special medicines. <laughs> and um, and unfortunately, while they were on holiday in Europe, this volcano erupted and um, it caused what was described as um, the year without a summer. So it was just constantly dark because of all the ash in the air and like the disrupted weather patterns. So they were like, we're a bunch of bored goths. We have nothing to do. So they had like a horror story writing contest where they each had to write a ghost story. And um, the others all wrote, you know, something. Um, Dodge Polidori wrote like an early vampire novel called The Vampire um, and Byron wrote like part of a ghost story but Mary Shelley wrote the beginnings of Frankenstein based on kind of various things that interested her at the time. Yes, which is an amazing beginning to a story and I believe that this was the trip where the Shelleys met Lord Byron which I hadn't realized until recently which is pretty incredible. Oh, I assume they kind of were friends and nope. they'd gone on holiday together. No, nope. that's wow. That's even more. <laughs> and they were also with um, Mary Shelley's Mary Godwin at that point, sister-in-law Claire Claremont, who wound up having. Oh, I thought Claire was Byron's lover. No, well, she wound up having an affair with him, <laughs> okay. and then she had a daughter by him. And then he basically was like, "Get away from me! I don't want to deal with you." And then later, they went. She went the. He took the kid back because he didn't want the Shelleys to have her. And then she went up dying in a convent. And, like, it goes on and on. But the whole setup is obviously, like, incredible. And Mary Shelley's background, even without this, is really fascinating. She was the daughter of William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, who died in ch- shortly after childbirth, um, having her. And Mary Wollstonecraft in particular was a very notable feminist writer. And William Godwin also was a sort of radical writer at the time. And so she was raised in this environment 
very unusual environment for a young. I girl mean, she was surrounded time. by adult intellectuals and yes. artists, so you can. It wasn't like super surprising that she wound up being very independent and eloping with an older man because that was who she had access to, and she wasn't just some teenage girl who knew nothing. She she was able to hold a conversation, um, and therefore was like, "I'm a grown up. I'm definitely going to elope with married Percy Shelley." <laughs> well, and he was a sort of devotee of. Um, William Godwin's writing and so that was how he came to know her and they would like go sit at her mother's grave and read I'm doing air quotes like her writing together and of course the urban legend is that she lost her virginity to Percy Shelley on top of her mother's grave which we will never know if that's true but delicious to think about (laughs) they were definitely having sex there in any event yeah she'd already lost a baby by the time she wrote Frankenstein and that is kind of really tying into the whole experience of the book, which is all about reproduction. Um, It is very present, especially because Percy allegedly was not particularly involved in the aftermath of this. um, I think it was like, it was either a stillbirth or it was a baby that died very soon after childbirth. Yes. And she had another baby and was probably pregnant again while writing the book, which is incredible. She, by the time all, all was said and done, she'd had four children and only one of them survived. Uh, and her mother obviously had died while in the sort of process of having her. So this was something that was a huge part of her life. And I think of all the sort of biographical readings of the novel, that this element of her relationship with childbirth and parentage is the most compelling to me. I was reading some academic articles Um, about the book in preparation for this. And there were various extremely specious readings of the text, like psychoanalyzing her that I found crazy. But this one in particular, which comes up in various places, including a really good um, New Yorker article by Jill Lepore last year for the Bicentennial that we'll link to that's a little more uh, accessible for non-academics. I just think really makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's definitely what I was thinking about when I was reading the book, because kind of the popular image of Frankenstein is this, it's this story about a mad scientist who plays God and then gets his comeuppance, which is definitely really explicitly how it's framed in the movie, which is where most people get their kind of idea of Frankenstein. You know, there's this whole little speech about him becoming God. But reading the book, the kind of elements of childbirth and reproduction are much more obvious, especially when you kind of know the backstory and also the idea. I kept thinking about Percy maybe not being the most sympathetic towards her after she lost the baby and the fact that the whole kind of emotional arc of the book is all about Victor Frankenstein just being a deadbeat dad who abandons his child and then every disaster is caused by him being a deadbeat dad. Yes. And it sounds like her father was also not a tremendously emotionally involved person. So, you know, she had some... A 19th century man, you say? Yes! Very (laughs) strange. I mean, the last biographical thing that I would say that, I mean, I find her just really interesting and this Shelley's relationship really interesting because I had always sort of thought of him as just like, I mean, he was a fuck boy. Like that's really the best word for it more so even than Byron. Like that just sort of encapsulates his whole vibe. But um, I wrote uh, an essay on him for my master's degree and wound up reading a lot of his letters and I actually found his letters like incredibly, incredibly charming. Like he was very funny and 
and also like very melodramatic. I mean, he, there's a reason that he was in this sort of whole situation, but um, I was just very taken with him and there aren't a tremendous number of letters from him to her because they were mostly in the same place. But in the ones that do exist, you can tell how much he's just like completely adores her, even though he was definitely sleeping with lots of other people because he believed in free love. <laughs> um, and after he died, prematurely she spent a good portion of the rest of her life working to sort of consecrate his legacy of genius um, and edited his poems in multiple editions over the course of her life she sort of kept track of his papers she really worked to make him seen as one of like the great poets of his time which she certainly was not during his lifetime I just find the two of them really kind of fascinating because there isn't a simple narrative for their relationship like he wasn't just an asshole and she wasn't just a sort of victim of his asshole assholishness like they clearly it worked for them for whatever reason but she then does again kind of get subsumed into him which i don't think is fair given that she wrote this important book um and on that note why don't we start talking a little bit more about the book which we sort of touched upon with the childbirth stuff. As you sort of said, the adaptations are really diverged from the novel substantially. And one of the main ways they do that is by focusing on the sort of mad scientist thing. Yeah, I mean, I had no idea starting this book that it starts and ends in the Arctic Circle, which is a big draw for me. You know, if you listen to our episode on the terror, you will know that I'm a big fan of those 19th and early 20th century polar explorers which Mary Shelley must have been because kind of the descriptions of the experience of the polar explorer character in this clearly indicate that she's someone who's been poring over lots of morbid texts of people who are describing their experience being stuck in the ice which was a popular theme in newspapers um but yeah it's kind of the framing device is that it opens with this captain named Walton who is trying to possibly even find the Northwest Passage, but he's trying to find one of these kind of areas in the North Pole zone. Um, And he comes across Frankenstein, who at that point is trying to track down his monster in the Arctic ice. And then Frankenstein kind of recounts his tale to Walton. And then the book ends at the end of the story with kind of Frankenstein at the end with the monster and like his death and stuff. But yeah, like I... I've not seen the stage play, which is meant to be one of the most kind of accurate versions, but the fact that it has this whole situation in the North Pole just doesn't come up in the sort of way that Frankenstein is portrayed in kind of media adaptations, which I'll draw from the 1931 movie. Um, But also like my main sticking point is the fact that Victor Frankenstein is really young. You know, he's not a doctor. He's a real weirdo who... You know, he goes to medical school because he's obsessed with the idea of kind of reanimating corpses and stuff. But the whole origin story of his philosophy as a scientist is that he is this self-taught person who is really obsessed with all of these classical scientists. So not what we would consider to be scientists now, like ancient Greeks and Romans and stuff who did not have a lot of their stuff right. So he shows up to medical school and I think it was Vienna and all of his professors are like, what the fuck are you... Oh, yes. Ingolstadt. Okay. And all of his professors are like, what the fuck are you talking about? You really need to study some actual science. Um, and he's too kind of self-centered to really take their advice. And he's like, no, I want to use the, this amazing combination of like galvanism and stuff from kind of the 12th, the, the second century to, you know, do my weird project. And so he doesn't graduate university. He's not actually kind of the 
mad old doctor figure that we think of from like the classic trope. He's like a 20-year-old. He's very over-emotional. He spends a lot of this book swooning and fainting, having a fever for two months so someone has to mop his brow. A lot of hysterical ranting um, and general immaturity. So that's the kind of... I would love to see a version where it's like a young, sexy idiot who cries all the time, which is relatively close to what we see in Penny Dreadful, which is, of course, a great show. Yes. I think the novel spans about 10 years, which is interesting also because it's so short and you don't Yeah, I, I wasn't paying attention it. to if there were any dates mentioned. I did not, like... <laughs> he starts at 18 and he's around 28 by the time the book okay. is finished. Because there definitely are points where he's like, oh, I'm going to Europe for two years. And I'm like, oh, okay, it's been two years then. Yeah, well, one of the interesting things about the book is that it really does emphasize how long it took to get everywhere and how long yes. people would... <laughs> go places and that you didn't you just didn't see people if you went away at that period which again is sort of interesting given the but fact. also the fact that there is sort of um with between this and dracula there is such a sense of kind of european exploration and obviously part of that is just sort of the upper class british idea of going on the grand tour and traveling around europe as sort of a coming of age story but it's definitely something which feels very culturally specific and one doesn't see so much now it's just this sort of like 19th century idea of like of course there's this just all these people who are traveling around central europe and like staying in random villages and <laughs> that sort of thing yes it's very specifically set in switzerland the characters profess a great deal of pride in their swiss nationality in the last part of the book where um victor goes to the united kingdom it, that's very funny because he's not impressed with a lot of what he sees there. There is a very um, unflattering description of a of an Irish village. Oh, very bad. The one thing about this that I noticed that was really hilarious to me was that there's a um, subplot with the the maid near the beginning of the book, and there's this whole random section where he just starts rambling about like how they treat maids better in switzerland than in england yeah, i did not remember that and i was like uh yes <laughs> you're right you're writing for an audience but i remember thinking when i first read this i was 18 i had just gone away to college and like that was you know a while ago but we obviously had you know email and cell phones and whatever and it was still you're still moved away from home and your parents and it was weird but with this, like, he's basically gone to university and, like, doesn't know anyone and is really far from home. And I think he's there for something like four years, just, like, building his corpse. <laughs> like a huge weirdo. I mean, it's definitely something that's, like, obviously Mary Shelley understood instinctively. And it's something that I think a lot of historical fiction writers now don't really take into account. Because I just, I mean, I just kind of remember simultaneously seeing all the complaints unfold about Game of Thrones, how all of the distances and timelines make no fucking sense. And they just have like armies materializing across the world because it's convenient compared to Black Sails, which I realize I mentioned a lot of this podcast because I'm obsessed with it, but <laughs> they have like a lot of storylines where one character will be out of sea at sea for several weeks and something else will be happening on land. And by the time they get back, their entire world has changed because like obviously there's no way of communicating. And it's like, that's actually a very key way to tell that type of historical story and it's a really useful conceit because you can just interject 
really cool drama into a story just by acknowledging the fact that people can't just Skype each other. Yes. I mean, obviously, I mean, it's a sort of self-evident thing to say, but it completely changes your experience of the world. And yeah. the character here, his whole issue is that he's really isolated from everyone. And if you imagine spending years in that state, that would make you yeah. kind of crazy. But part of the part of the way it can be easy to miss those little moments, though, where he's like, and then I went to England for a year, and it's like a paragraph later, and then a year has passed, is that the book is told in this kind of nesting doll structure, where, as you mentioned earlier, it begins in the Arctic, where it's this, like, explorer writing letters home to his sister, and then... Who is enraptured by Frankenstein. He's just like, yes, this wonderful man I met in the Arctic Ice, this incredibly charismatic hitchhiker who's just doing this really normal thing of chasing his hulking beast across the ice. And it's like, Frankenstein is so weird. This poor, lonely man has been stuck at the North Pole for so long. He's desperate for human contact. And he has alighted upon the worst possible option for human contact. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Although he also sucks. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, no one sucks as much as Victor. Well, I... (laughs) Touche. <laughs> and then within Victor's story, the monster winds up telling, or the creature winds up telling his own story. And then he winds up sort of recounting a, another story of these people he's sort of observing within that story. So you have all of this sort of recreation of, of retellings of narratives within the book, which is really interesting because for a few reasons. One of which is that it, when the novel was sort of created in the 18th century, it was epistolary. It, pe- it was all just written as like people writing letters to each other. Um, like Dracula. Yes, um, which was later, but the early examples would be something like um, Pamela or Evelina. And uh, even Jane Austen sort of juvenile writing is, is written in that form, like the, um, the short thing she wrote that uh, Love and Friendship, the movie came out a few years ago, is based on, is written in that format. And then once you get into the 19th century, you get books that are written either in the first person or um, with free and direct discourse, like Austen's later work. And so within this one book, you get this kind of sort of accordion of like 18th and 19th century styles sort of merged into one, which I find really interesting. And the other effect of that is that the sort of conundrum of the book, and this is laid out in an article by um, Jean Britton that I'll link to, and if you have access to JSTOR, you can access this, is that the sort of tension of the book is that characters can't really sympathize with each other or understand each other's points of view. And so Shelley lays out these various characters who are kind of trying to articulate their experiences in the world and characters sort of want to sympathize with each other. And like Walton, for instance, when Frankenstein shows up is immediately, as you say, just like, this man is amazing. Like, tell me everything about yourself. And even Frankenstein, when the creature winds up very eloquently explaining his experience to him, feels like a pang of sort of sympathy for him. But none of that winds up translating into actual empathetic experience and the book ultimately ends with everybody dead or and or just like this feudal situation and i find that as sort of the construction of the book 
quite interesting. I don't think the actual prose is the best, and no, a lot of the little details no. don't make any sense. But the overall- see, that's why I really yearn for a direct adaptation because I feel like people aren't necessarily going to have a hugely fun time about engaging with this book on a really sincere level. I don't think just because of the kind of unwieldiness of the prose and the characterization just feels a little weird. Also, kind of all of the characters talk the same a bit, but if you had a screen adaptation that cleaved closer to the book and all its weirdness, I think that would be that would be cool. Yes. Um, I mean, the best version, which we already mentioned, was the National Theatre one with, with Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch. And they I saw that on a simulcast. I didn't see the actual play, but mm-hmm. I think it would be really interesting to adapt that play for the screen because it did take the story quite seriously um although not so much the element that i was just describing of like these sort of layers built on top of each other and like later books in the 19th century basically copy from her so like wuthering heights has a very similar framing structure of like a guy coming into town basically and hearing the story being told to him and then dracula is also clearly extremely influenced by this book on a number of levels. I found the book, reading it again, the things that interested me the most about it, I think, were kind of the things she's doing structurally, which I think are really ingenious and is something that I don't think she probably gets enough credit for because of the way that the book has been received. And then the sort of, the way that those tie into the underlying themes. So, like, Frankenstein is the parental figure for the monster and then the monster or the creature's story is kind of folded into his own story right which makes sense because he's sort of the person responsible for creating him and then he also is relaying his story to this other person but anyway i i found that interesting the parenting stuff which we already talked about a little bit is i think the sort of central thing in the book yeah he's a bad dad yeah i mean he he is like well this child looks like a monster to me so i'm gonna abandon it so the monster who never receives a name but kind of has various epithets thrown at it throughout the book essentially goes on the run there are various murders throughout the book but it's sort of like the monster essentially starts off as an innocent and learns how to be a person by spying on this um sort of charring charming idyllic rural family for a while so the point where the creature is kind of explaining itself um, it's talking in this very floral way that is very much at odds with the way we think about Frankenstein's monster, but basically it kind of learned to talk by listening in on this family. And um, the way I was kind of headcanoning it was that because it's got a pre-made brain, um, he's very good at learning because all the knowledge is still sloshing around in there and he just has to, you know, reignite it. But, um, you know, I, there's a lot of scientific elements in this which are very much hand-waved and that's <laughs> fine because that is how the stories you mean to continue with the science fiction genre. Um but yeah, he kind of, he, he watches this family in the forest and sees that there's there's this blind father and that these two adult children who have this very warm relationship and look after their father and he kind of learns what love is and then wants to help them. So he becomes their secret helper and kind of chops wood for them and stuff. But of course, eventually when he makes himself known, they're like, you're a monster and try to beat him up and get rid of him, uh, which is kind of the, the story of his life. Like he realizes that he's perceived as monstrous. So he decides the only way that he can have happiness as if he can find Victor and persuade Victor to make him a monster wife, which is the point where things truly go off the rails because Victor 
is not hugely enthusiastic about this project and then the monster proceeds to kill everyone he loves he has a family who are kind of introduced at the beginning of the book so he's raised by his father he has two younger brothers um, one of whom is killed his fiance is also his cousin who has been raised as his sister so there is this very strong incestuous element um, throughout the book um, which was changed in the second draft because there were kind of two main printings of this book. The one that I read was the 1818 version, which is kind of the more pure Mary Shelley version. And then there was like a later one in 1830 where she rewrote a bunch of stuff and it kind of included essentially some censorship. Like she changed some of the themes to make it less edgy. And one of the things she changed was that she uh, removed the incest part, which is just complete, treated completely normally in this book. Like it's it's totally chill to not only marry your cousin, which I guess is like, I mean, it could be worse. People marry their cousins sometimes, but it's his cousin who was raised as his sister. (laughs) So there's a lot going on there. And she's this sort of classic, virtually personality-free, supportive girl who loves him very much um, and then suffers because the kind of the big, cool kind of plot thing in the, the later part is that Frankenstein's monster threatens Victor saying, you know, I will be with you on your wedding night. And because Victor is completely self-absorbed, he assumes that this means that the monster will come and kill him. Um, And obviously the monster kills Elizabeth because that's the actual way of punishing Victor. (laughs) That's what happens there. And then that kind of precipitates the final act of the book where Victor runs off and travels the world feeling very angsty, hoping to potentially either escape or find the monster and defeat him and that's how he ends up at the North Pole. Um, But what I just kept thinking about during this passage is that he had just abandoned his little brother Ernest because he has this kind of weakling brother who's this very sweethearted child that Elizabeth thinks should become a farmer because it would be good for him to be outdoors. And because by this point Victor's father has had a nervous breakdown and died, Ernest is an orphan. They just don't mention him again. And I'm like, who's looking after Ernest? <laughs> I feel like perhaps Mary Shelley too had slightly forgotten <laughs> Ernest by this point. Yeah, that was that is really the only explanation. But I was just like, no one's taking care of Ernest. <laughs> he doesn't get a ton of FaceTime in this book. No, he is a non-entity in this book, but I was concerned for his welfare. <laughs> yes. I mean, all of the family members are functionally non-entities. They're just like around. He also has another like cute younger brother whom the monster murders earlier yeah, on early in the book, on. who's yeah. just like conveniently cute in order to get murdered, which, you know, mm-hmm. fair enough. That's fine. The stuff with Elizabeth is interesting. The fact that she changed it to remove the sort of incest stuff means that the sort of subtext of this like decaying aristocracy is removed from the book, which is unfortunate. The other thing she really amped up was the like Christian elements of the book which really are there in a minimal minimal sense in the f- first version yeah I did not pick there's, up on that yeah much. there's almost yeah. nothing and then she added a ton in the later version but she also amped up the homoeroticism in the later version which I think is quite I don't even know how that's possible because this book is already very homoerotic right so <laughs> she adds a passage I wish I had it in front of me but I don't I think this the more stylistic revisions that she did as opposed to sort of changing some of the content were primarily at the first couple chapters, which are particularly clunkily written in the 1818 edition. And um, she basically just like cleaned them up. And when Walton first sees Frankenstein, the description of him in the 1831 edition is just like, Oh, like his beauty and like he's just like his rosy cheeks and I mean like on and on and on and you're like wow dude you have to calm down 
<laughs> well, it's like I was screen capping this as I was going along. So I've got like various screen caps in the book, most of which are just about Frankenstein being ridiculously extra. But um, I just found one which was uh, toward the beginning from the 1818 version where Walton's kind of describing his experience with Frankenstein. And at this point, Frankenstein is some guy he's picked up at the North Pole and is like mad and ill. And he's writing, my affection for my guest increases every day. He excites at once admiration and my pity to an astonishing degree. How can I see so noble a creature destroyed by misery without feeling the most poignant grief? He is so gentle yet so wise. His mind is so cultivated. And when he speaks, although his words are culled with the choicest art, yet they flow with rapidity and unparalleled eloquence. Yeah. Yeah. And he talks all about how he would like yearns for a companion to be more experienced and wise than himself to support him in life. And Frankenstein's just there like, I am insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, so there's that. And then there's the fact that Frankenstein's best friend is this guy named Henry Clerval, who he's is just the like... the shining light of the world. He's right. a lovely boy who's very nice all the time and tolerates Frankenstein's bullshit to a quite frankly unreasonable degree. And at one point, so like towards... The kind of the latter half of the book, after the point where the monster has gone off the deep end, Frankenstein is like, okay, um, I guess it's time for me to marry my cousin. Or rather, his father is like, okay, Richter, it's time for you to marry your cousin. And he's like, I agree. I definitely hold my cousin in high esteem. I should marry her. But first, I have to go on holiday for two years with Henry. <laughs> and they proceed to do that. <laughs> and then Henry gets murdered. And then Henry gets murdered. So that is also happening. And then Frankenstein and the creature have this sort of relationship where they can't escape each other. And by the end of the book, they're essentially one being. All of this is very interesting, particularly given the fact that uh, Frankenstein has basically like given birth to a person without a woman's help, right? I do think that one of the main flaws of the book is that it has zero interest in women whatsoever and part of that yeah like the 1931 movie has more women in it like they add female characters yeah (laughs) and like elizabeth has absolutely no personality as you said there's like a maid who gets unfairly executed for this murder she didn't commit who is again just like a saint she's just a saintly woman and then the family that um, the creature sort of learns to be a person from by spying on them. There's like a beautiful, nice daughter. And yes. then the son is in love with like an Arabian woman who's also very beautiful and like doesn't want to live in wherever in the Middle East anymore because she's a good Christian woman. Yeah. Cause the, so the way I was reading all this is that Mary has definitely internalized um, her late mother's message about women being independent, but because she's a teenage girl who's surrounded by powerful men, she is not fully engaged with the idea that she and her peers are also equal humans with complex thoughts, which she clearly is, but one does not realize that oneself is a person. <laughs> yes. And so it's, in, it's just an interesting thing to get from a book written by a woman because the female characters are such sort of typical stock types, right? But the way she writes men is also not the way that you would expect a man to write men. So, right, you kind of have these sort of dueling impulses within the same book. Yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. And then, of course, the central sort of conflict and anxiety then comes when the creature says, like, you need to make me a wife. And 
Frankenstein is totally freaked out about the prospect of them going off to, I mean, so the creature says, like, you need to make me a wife and we'll leave you alone. We'll go off into, like, you know, South America where there are no people. Ha ha ha. And Frankenstein's like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Because he doesn't want anyone else to get murdered. And then, of course, torments himself about it. And is like, but what if they create, like, a new race of... Yeah, it suddenly gets into this sort of, like, immigrants are stealing our job zone. Where he's like, they're going to create this, like, new evil master race that's going to take over the world. And it's like, wow, that's a real imperial anxiety you've got there. (laughs) Well, what's so funny about it also, and I remember getting really hung up about this when I was 18. uh, Was being like, he could just not put a uterus in the woman like why is this so hard this is so dumb which that's a very funny critique because you're technically right but that's not the kind of logic we're working with here <laughs> well right but this is the thing right is it, yeah like it is sort of divorce the, the whole story is kind of divorced from the actual logic of anatomy despite being technically about anatomy and so it's in this strange sort of middle zone of like non-logic so but speaking of the sort of settler imagery the other kind of main subtext of the book that i hadn't really thought about at the time because i was 18 and the professor i had when we read this book was very bad and didn't know what she was talking about is the racial element which jillipore talks about in the new york article that i mentioned above which again we'll link to and i really highly recommend for anyone who obviously has read the book or even is just interested in it it was a really really interesting read and then I also found a good uh, academic article about this from around, yeah, so 1993, which feels like it should be outdated by now, but I found it very good. It was a good sort of um, just survey of this by um, H.L. Malkow, so I'll link to that as well. But basically, the reading is that the way the creature is described strongly parallels the way that like Africans were described at that time in English writing. So he's described as like very grotesque and dark and ugly, but also like superhumanly strong and able to survive in like uninhabitable climates. And like his diet is coarse, Yeah, I did not pick right? up on any of this, but now I'm like, wow, that does sound a lot like racist propaganda of the time. <laughs> yes. And then, so... Once I had seen one thing about this as I was reading the book, I was like, oh my god, yes, it's all over here. But then the other thing that obviously you don't pick up on in the text because it's historical is that there were tons and tons and tons of stage plays produced of this in the 19th century, which makes sense because it was so hugely popular. And that's where the sort of seeds get planted for the 1931 film adaptation in that the creature very quickly becomes a nonverbal monstrous creature who's kind of just like grunting and whatever and um and just to say like the kind of the character design of the creature was just all over the place like they were they had quite a lot of leeway so the kind of the version that we think of as the definitive version which is the boris karloff version i'm pretty sure was kind of essentially created for that version for, for that movie i mean i saw a picture of there was actually a previous there were actually a couple of previous film adaptations um like earlier ones and i think the first was a short film um, that was like sometime in the 1910s and Dracula looked like kind of a weird hulking figure with like shaggy hair and stuff like there's a lot of different appearances and kind of the green skin it was just makeup for black and white movies like he wasn't traditionally green right. yes um, and in fact the makeup that um, the actors would wear in 
these plays in the 19th century was sort of like dark blue, which was intended to convey like a deathly pallor, right? But obviously also then can read as blackface. And Lepore specifically compares the creature's narrative within the narrative of the book to slave narratives, which I found super, super interesting because what he's describing is basically teaching himself to think and then specifically read, which obviously slaves were not supposed to be allowed to do. And then also the feeling of just like being totally rejected by society and not knowing how to like become a person. And those were things that were accessible more later in the century. But I found that comparison really interesting, even if it wasn't that specifically wasn't something that she was intending to do. I still think it's a sort of fruitful comparison point. We do know that she was very familiar with information about British slavery she and American slavery. She had read all kinds of things. She kept a log of books she had read. So, and she and Percy read things together and they kept track of them. And um, she was really interested in this topic and obviously had come from these sort of radical parents. But her exact opinions on this stuff are not known because she didn't write about it in like a nonfiction sense. And obviously here it's just subtextual. And the thing that the academic article I read pointed out that I thought was really interesting was that simultaneously the book is kind of saying, clearly placing the onus on the situation on Frankenstein, who's been a total like neglectful nightmare person, but that it, does seem like there is something inherent about the creature that is violent. Like he quite rapidly defaults to violent behavior, which is sort of tied up in the way that people were discussing enslaved people in the colonies at this time. Like Percy Shelley was a, um, his belief was that slavery should be abolished, but it should be done slowly because like, who knows what these people will do if you just set them free. And then the fear of like letting them all go to a uh, sort of like virgin territory, people were really, really freaked out because what if they just all went crazy and then came back and killed all of us, like wishes reflected in the novel. So I found reading about this and then thinking about it while reading the book really interesting because it, I think there is a kind of ambivalence in the center of the text, even while she's clearly sympathetic to the creature, like he becomes this like huge murderer quite quickly. And it's not as straightforward an allegory of like injustice as it might be. Yeah. It's kind of the, it doesn't really have like a specific moral. Cause obviously the way I'm reading it is just like, don't be a shitty deadbeat dad, which is the way I'm reading it. But also I'm reading it from a kind of, slightly hilarity fueled millennial way but like there's kind of a clash within the monster story because for a significant part of it he's very sympathetic and you have these stories like he's saving someone from drowning and this sort of thing and then very rapidly he's like like a serial killer incel right he's like i can't get a girlfriend so it's time for me to murder everyone like babies (laughs) like small children he's murdering right (laughs) and so then this is what like I, So I watched the 1931 movie, which I'd never seen. I have seen the sequel to it, interestingly, Bride of Frankenstein, before, but I hadn't seen the, um, the first one. And then we both watched Spanning Dreadful when it was on. And I also rewatched last night Young Frankenstein, um, the Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder film from the 70s, which I hadn't seen since I was a teenager. And, and I've seen the 
the Cumberbatch ones, which we've mentioned already. So thinking about all of those adaptations together was really interesting because the 1931 version, even though I think the book has this slight ambivalence about what's going on with the creature, it makes him a quite sympathetic character, not unlike uh, Satan in Paradise Lost, which is one of the books that he reads to sort of educate himself. And the 1931 version renders him inarticulate like many of the previous iterations. And the explanation for that is that the brain that Frankenstein puts in his body is an abnormal brain, which is like an accident that Igor makes. And there's all of this sort of eugenicist subtext about like body science, which really reflects uh, America at that time that I found really interesting that doesn't appear in the novel really all. It was just like the phrase, the criminal brain. Yes. Right. (laughs) And so that I found like quite fascinating. The sequel, Bride of Frankenstein, I haven't seen in a while, but that really emphasizes like the homoerotic subtext in the novel in like a quite wild way. You know, and um, the two most faithful versions are the Cumberbatch version and I think Penny Dreadful, even though it's being mashed up with a bunch of other stuff, like the dynamic between Frankenstein and the creature really evokes the book for me a lot. But I think, to me, by far the most interesting adaptation is Young Frankenstein, which is amazing because it's this like comedy movie. Which I like saw part of as a teenager was just like, I don't like this. I don't find it funny and just stopped watching it. So So I watched it with my dad as a teenager. Um, He quotes it all the time as he does many things. And so I remember thinking it was hilarious and we had a really good time watching it. Although my little brother was terrified of it and like ran away the second that Frankenstein appeared, which is hilarious because that is literally what everyone does to Frankenstein in that movie and in all the other stories. And the whole point of that movie is that Frank, or the not Frankenstein, sorry, the creature, he was terrified of the creature. And the point of that movie is that the creature literally is not a threat. Like he isn't bad. He doesn't kill anyone. He's just a baby. And so all of the subtext from the book about the creature being like the child of Frankenstein is made quite literal in Young Frankenstein. So when he sort of first wakes up, Frankenstein, who's played by Gene Wilder, literally is like teaching him how to walk, like you teach a toddler how to walk. And he goes through the sort of cycle of being really freaked out and afraid of him and like not wanting anything to do with him. But then he kind of comes back around and starts essentially treating him like he is his child. Like he's literally, there's a scene where he decides that actually that this is like this amazing creation of his it's very much like a narcissistic parent thing right he's like my amazing my amazing thing and he's like rocking the creature back and forth and literally saying to him something like like you're aren't you mother's like sweet baby like it's unbelievable and then this sort of goes on throughout the film and the culmination of that movie is that you know the the mob is going to kill him and they don't want that to happen so they kind of like meld brains in this like new procedure. And so they wind up kind of like sharing some of each other's qualities. So the creature winds up becoming very articulate, like he is in the book and then he doesn't get killed. And then Frankenstein winds up mostly staying the same, but then he sometimes becomes 
basically the creature, which is conveyed through this sort of sexist 70s movie as having a great sexual prowess. <laughs> so there are elements of it that have not aged well, like it's quite sexist, but I found it really interesting in this way of like clearly identifying themes in the book and then doing something with them that the other adaptations haven't and also really in a way that like all. the vast majority of the audience are just gonna be like what the fuck is this because you've not <laughs> you're like you're aware of it through boris karloff and not like as a book well but it's also like a direct parody of that movie like it's shot yeah. and scored like a 1930s sort of like monster movie and there are many direct references to that film like the thing with the abnormal brain is basically shot for shot recreated. There's an Igor character who is totally hilarious. And that kind of thing is really interesting to me because you wind up having these sort of layers upon layers of this classic text that now, like, I mean, the way young Frankenstein is set up is that like, he's the grandson of the original Frankenstein. And like, he doesn't want to be associated with him because he's like a crazy person. And then of course winds up like doing this thing again. But Again, like layers upon layers of creative works. Yeah, I mean, the whole concept of Igor, who is not in the book in any capacity, and I, I assume was created so Frankenstein would have someone to talk to when yeah. you're doing a stage play, right? Because you can't just have someone monologuing all the time. Um, but I feel like the, the general sort of imagery of Igor is so widely known. And despite literally not having seen this movie until today, I would have known Igor when I was you know, probably 11, because there is this whole Igor thing in a ton of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels, which I don't know if you come across Terry Pratchett's Igor. So like, along with the more typical sort of fantasy races, like vampires and werewolves and trolls and what have you, there are Igors in the Discworld. So like, there's just this whole culture where everyone is this sort of Frankenstein's monster guy who lisps all the time and is this helpful servant and loves to sort of boil stuff in vats and like the some of them are more progressive and they try to lisp less and like they they one of them joins the police force and becomes like the forensic scientist for them and stuff but they're all these sort of comical lurching sidekick characters the one in the movie in the frankenstein movie is actually called fritz but like the concept of the igor is so recognizable and they just sort of emerged it's like when people kind of invent like a collective fanfic trope that just becomes part of the public domain (laughs) Yes. Well, and the again, the interesting thing about all of these movies is that and adaptations is that they basically just reflect the period in which they've been created, which is how everything in culture always works. But it would be, I'm sure someone's done some study like this or is in the process of doing something. I mean, the latest Frankenstein movie is like a shitty movie by a shitty Hollywood man. Right. <laughs> the, the son of a popular horror director and wrote this film, which got like one star reviews and forced James McAvoy and uh, Daniel Radcliffe to do a bunch of gay jokes. And it's like, well, I'm not watching that. Fuck off. <laughs> right. Uh, but even like Penny Dreadful, there's something about remix culture in there, right? That feels tied yeah, to today. Because Penny Dreadful is like, it's very much sort of actually good victoriana rather than the sort of bad stephen moffat victoriana yes. but yeah it's it's kind of the the modern kind of sexy hbo vision of what that world is like right um but so last year for the bicentennial the morgan library in new york which if you're not familiar uh basically does mr morgan the the robber baron's house that is now a library and they will have exhibitions 
of like archival material, which is interesting. It's not how most um, museums are, but anyway, if people are in New York, it's not a very well-known museum comparatively. And I really like it. They do a lot of cool stuff. And last year for the bicentennial, they did a Frankenstein exhibition. So they had pages from the manuscript, which is very uncommon to see. It was very cool. Bits supposedly of uh, Shelley's skull, which we'll never know if that was really that, but I liked thinking that it was. But then also all of these posters of like Frankenstein movies from the 20th century. And we've been discussing kind of the most famous and uh, culturally significant adaptations of this book. There were literally dozens and dozens of posters of these like random B movies having to do with Frankenstein from like the 40s and 50s and 60s, all of which had to do with nuclear bombs because that was what oh everyone was worried about at the time. And it was like, I just, it was unbelievable. It was like, what the fuck is this? Like, it was crazy. So many of them. And it was, I had no idea that this was a thing. And no, I'd never, I didn't know that. No. Wow. And it makes you A, I mean, it realize. It make sense. Yeah. Well, like the number of movies that get made that no one will ever hear about ever again. Oh, especially right? during like the mid 20th century B-movie period mm-hmm. when they were just fucking like farting them out. <laughs> yeah. And also the extent to which these big characters who become just sort of cultural signifiers as um, Dracula and Frankenstein certainly have just get repurposed to express anxieties. Well, the big three are, I mean, yeah, like Dracula and Frankenstein work better because they're more emotionally resonant and you can use them to represent something, but like it's them and Sherlock Holmes. Yes, and then the hybrid version is Shakespeare adaptations. Yeah. But it's basically the big three are Sherlock Holmes and that, and now you can kind of add Superman and Batman, but they're actually owned by people who have copyright, whereas these ones aren't. So you can right. just go off and <laughs> you can keep making those uh, knockoff Frankenstein movies ad infinitum. There is one starring Sting. <laughs> um, there is a Sting Frankenstein movie. I've not Ooh. seen it, but um, it 100% does star Sting. <laughs> I mean, great. That's sure. Why not? Uh, it's no stupider than uh, all kinds of other stuff that's out there. So what better note to end on than Sting's Frankenstein, really? I don't think I have anything else <laughs> yeah. to say. Thanks for joining us for this academic discussion. Uh, primarily thanks to Morgan's expertise on uh, 19th century literature. <laughs> so to remind you all, we will be doing another more extensive book club over the summer. We'll be doing... Um, multiple posts sort of discussion posts for people to uh, contribute their thoughts uh, over the course of a couple summer months we'll have the schedule on patreon um, we have put up discussion posts on patreon for this book um, just a general one and then also um, about the movie adaptations uh, so you can check those out but over the summer we will be reading Elizabeth Gaskell's North and South, which was selected by uh, a plurality of you in a very tight race, which was exciting. I don't know what that's about. I feel like it's probably about class. I know there's a They're hot man in the TV adaptation. Class. So <laughs> North and South is, I think, mostly social novels for the options. I thought that would be kind of the most interesting um, and romances, of course. So it is a romance. It is a social novel. It takes place... 
I don't think I don't think she specifies the city. I think she deliberately doesn't, but it's clearly Manchester. And so it really engages with the Industrial Revolution in a way that basically none of the books from that period do at all. Richard Armitage in the show plays the sort of romantic lead. Yes, the only thing I know about this is how excited people are over Mr. Armitage. Yes. He and he owns um a factory and then the Oh. The woman who's the love interest is like, I don't like this. You're a bad man. And uh, things progress from there. So my vision of this is that we will have some discussion posts. We will then talk about the the book. And then we will also do an episode on the this show. Because I actually think the show is better than the book, which is not a comment on the quality of the book, which is excellent. But the show is so good. So good. Richard Armitage's best role, in my opinion, having seen not that many of them, but uh, very good. So I think that will be really fun. And in the meantime, thank you for participating in this uh, preliminary book club. It was a lot of fun. Uh, if you would like to subscribe to our Patreon, you can do that at www.patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast.com. You can also leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. We would really appreciate it. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing on The Daily Dot. You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. We are on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.